all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Phil Cly. Phil, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're going to have a little uh, little fun here, uh, getting understanding your background, and then we're going to talk about uh, some of your projects, uh, including the new PBS series American Veteran and uh, some books you're writing. But, uh, Phil, I know you were born in White Plains, New York. How did a nice kid like you end up in the Marine Corps? <laughs> well, my country went to war. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I always grew up with a, a respect for, for service to country. Um, I actually wanted to be a diplomat when I was a kid. You know, I didn't think that I was going to be a, in the military in any way. But we, you know, uh, I went to college in 2001. 9-11 happened. We were soon it in a war in Afghanistan. And then soon after that, we're going to Iraq. So, you know, it just seemed like if I wanted to serve my country, this was the best way to do it. Well, let's back up. You glossed over a couple of points that I know are important and I think kind of sort of shape your values and maybe your direction, which is um, your father served in the Peace Corps and your your maternal grandfather was a career diplomat. It sounds like those things had an impact on your values growing up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and my, <clears throat> my mother had worked in international medical aid, right? So the idea of service is something that was ex- extremely important. Um, you know, it was just there in my family for sure. And I think that's one of the things we find here in talking to folks on veterans radio, Phil, is that, you know, maybe it wasn't set around the dinner table, but it was up just absorbed around the dinner table that, you know, granddad had served this way and dad had served this way and mom had served that way. And they're not necessarily beating it into your head that you have to serve, but it kind of gets into your DNA, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does. <clears throat> and actually, three of uh, three of us, uh, I'm one of five boys, and three of us ended up joining the service. God, your mother's a saint, five boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. She definitely is. So you went uh, off to Dartmouth College. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, because from there you went off to Officer of Candidate School. Yeah, so um, uh, I studied history and writing uh, in college. Um, had a good time there. Uh, <laughs> it was a fun place to be. And yeah, and then I um, joined them. I did OCS during my summer. So my junior summer, I did 10 weeks of OCS. My older brother had done Marine Corps OCS uh, in sort of two installments. I think they did two six-week versions, and he was like, you should do it all in one because, you know, just get it over with. Some, sometimes it's worth listening to our older brothers. Sometimes, um, <laughs> sometimes yeah. Just sometimes. So uh, when you went into the Marine Corps, tell us about uh, your MOS and kind of what you thought you were going to do and actually what you ended up doing. Yeah, so I I didn't know what I was going to do. Um uh, you know, I was happy to do anything. Um, and I was assigned to be a public affairs officer, which was pretty up, up fairly high in the list of things that I'd sort of, you know, cause you list the different MOSs that you might want. And, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I think they, the, you know, in, in the sort of initial sort that hadn't been what I'd gotten, but I think the SPCs put me in, um, uh, put me in as that. Cause I was like the guy out, like, you know, memorizing poetry and field exercises so uh, maybe it seemed like a fit well that's where uh, the history and writing uh, experience and and degrees from dartmouth college came into play and uh, tell folks that maybe they're not aware of what public affairs officers do give them a little bit of that and and uh, uh, what your job duties were sure so as a public affairs officer you have a group of marines who work for you um combat correspondents so if you if you've seen Full Metal Jacket, you can think of Joker, right? Uh, and they go out to different units and take photos and video and write stories about what the Marines are doing. Um, and so we publish stories about what the different units are doing, provide information back to the families about you know what their husbands, wives, sons, um, children are doing, sons, daughters, children are doing. And then also we coordinate with um, you know, sort of national media coming through, um, you know, everybody from relatively small, um, you know, sort of local papers to, you know, New York Times correspondents or Time Magazine or whatever would be coming through, um, you know, hopping a ride on military aircraft or going out with, with Marine units to see what's going on uh, in the war. And so, and you're also an advisor to, to to the commanding general. And I did, you know, other things like there was a brief period where I was the aide de camp um, uh, you know, during my time in Iraq. So, uh, but it was a great job in many ways because the thing about it that I really liked was you got to spend time with a lot of different types of Marines, a lot of different units. You saw a kind of really wide range of the Marine Corps of what people were doing of all that it took to actually sort of run this thing. Um, and so, you know, I'd do everything from go on patrols with infantry guys to spend time with doctors or mortuary affairs guys, the guys who are responsible for 
preparing the bodies of the dead to be sent home. Um, so just, a, you know, uh, logistics, maintenance, the whole, you know, engineers, everything. Um, and so it was really fascinating in that regard. Yeah, if you have a curious um, nature, which it sounds like you do, uh, that sort of thing gave you exposure to a real wide variety of uh, tasks and, and jobs and, and missions uh, that probably was uh, made it all that much more interesting. And you spent a year over in Iraq and Anbar province, as I understand it. Um, yes. Uh, give, give us the time frame for that and sort of what was mm-hmm. going on. Yeah, so this was during the surge. So if you remember, um, the war was not going particularly well. There'd been a lot of violence in 2006. And uh, then President Bush decided that he would sort of go with a new strategy. They would increase the number of troops. Um, The troops were being taught to implement counterinsurgency theory. You know, um, the idea being that you had to work with the local population, understand what was driving them, uh, get them on your side, uh, sort of uh, get out more among the communities uh, and, and that sort of thing. And so <clears throat> um, when we went to Anbar, it was, I think it was the most violent place in Iraq at the time. And, you know, like there was a suicide bombing outside our main gate the first month I was there, a lot of injured civilians. Um and then what happened over time was uh, you had the Anbar Awakening, which was a bunch of tribal elders and, and, and sheikhs and such who um, decided to work with the Americans. And um, so they, uh, they started, you know, convincing people to join the police force. They started giving us information. Um, and we were able to, you know, with their help, bring down the level of violence in the province. So for us, you know, it seemed as though things were going very well by the time that I left Iraq. And, and you served from 2005 to 2009, uh, getting out of the Marine Corps and going on and, and uh, picking up a master's degree in creative writing from Hunter College in 2011 using yes. the GI Bill, which many of us did to advance our education. Yeah, it was incredible. And at that point, and we're talking to Phil Cly, uh, you know, why does a Marine think he can do a bunch of uh, writing and make a living writing? Well, I didn't think I didn't think I could make a living writing, and I, I apologize my voice is hoarse because I'm sick. Um, I didn't think I could make a living writing. Um, but uh, I, I was originally going to be a teacher, so I did my master's degree at Hunter, and then I <clears throat> I went on to uh, teacher's college, and I was the, the plan was ultimately to become a high school teacher. Um, but uh, I sold my first book while I was at teacher's college, and uh, after that, um, you know, uh, I... Yeah, I sold my first book while I was at Teachers College and just have been writing ever since. Well, that first book was uh, Redeployment, a a short story collection. Um, I think it won the 2014 National Book Award for Fiction, and you were on your your way. It's it's an interesting lesson, though, because um, to pass along to our veteran radio listeners, Phil, because 
you know, the plan was I'm going to college here. I'm going to be a high school teacher. But another yeah. opportunity arose, right? It, you know, one <laughs> of the things we learn in the military, you can do all the planning you want. But maybe you got to change course, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, good to have a plan. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And, and great that uh, another opportunity presented itself. And uh, you've written uh, books, articles, uh, all sorts of different things uh, that we could spend the uh, time talking about. But I wanted to sort of one of those things that came along, never would have expected it, I, sus- I think you'd probably agree, is this opportunity to be involved with uh, public uh, broadcasting stations, PBS. Tell us how yeah. that, that series came about and, and uh, how that opportunity presented itself. Right. So Insignia Films um, has spent years really interviewing veterans of, of all different types. I mean, they really wanted to get a wide diversity of veterans, veterans of different wars, veterans who did lots of different things, who had different experiences, who had, who had different, different politics, different responses to the wars that they were in, who had very different careers after the wars. And and they they put together this documentary, uh, which was aired on PBS, which you can you can watch if you if you go to the PBS site. It's called American Veteran, where they organized each episode of the documentary around sort of critical moments in the veteran experience. So military training, right? That decision to enter the enter the military and that first exposure to military training. Um, going to war, coming home from war, the aftermath of of war. And so you get sort of all of these different perspectives thematically tied together. And then, and this was the part, um, you know, that, that surprised me, but was very cool. You know, the, they realized that they had all of this material from really remarkable people, right? And material that that sort of couldn't be told in full in the in the documentary as it was aired on television. Um, but that was remarkable because it had people telling their whole life stories. You know, so you have uh, Frank DeVito, who's a World War II veteran who was at Omaha, right? Uh, and you get his story, um, that first wave, letting people off of his boat. Um, this just unbelievably gripping story of what happened to him. And then, you know, everything after that, coming home, his, you know, his, his life and his career, you know, the fact that he, you know, he never even told his wife, uh, that, he, uh, you know, what he had been through. Um, and it was only after she died that he finally broke his silence. Uh, you have, you know, Shoshana Johnson, the first black female POW and her story of being captured in Iraq, what happened to her. Um, but also, you know, the experience of coming home, of dealing with it, um, of sort of connecting with her family in a different way and pushing members of her family to start to process aspects of their military experience that they hadn't as she was trying to deal with, you know, what she had gone through, um, the, the difficulties in, in the dating market when uh, when insecure guys can't really handle, um, you know, a woman who's been to war uh, and is decorated for, for her behavior there. Um, so just like, a, you know, a range of veterans, um, you know, there are people who, you know, one of the veterans we profiled became a conscientious objector. Um, another one loved the military. He, he kept, he was doing one of the most dangerous jobs in World War II. He was a, um, he was in a bomber crew. Uh, a quarter of the bombers that we put into the air uh, went down. 
And yet he kept volunteering for missions because he thought it was so exciting. And the military sort of opened up new worlds for him. So it was just this really kind of remarkable range of, um, uh, of, of people. Um, and and, yeah, so. and Phil, I want to give some uh, restate sort of some credit here. This series, American Veteran uh, Unforgettable Stories, is a production of Insignia Films for WGBH, produced yes. by Curtis Fox. And um, it it's sort of one of those things where you say, well, it had to take a lot of time to stitch all these individual stories together Um because what you're doing is educating this. This is less for the veterans, if you will, and more about trying to educate the civilian population, which is, you know, 99% of the population, of what folks do as uh, military service members. How did, how did you become, if you will, the voice of this? Uh, they asked me to do it. <laughs> they had interviewed me in the series. I think that they... Um, I guess they, they, you know, they liked some of the things that I said. Um, and yeah, they just asked me if I'd be willing to be the host. And so, you know, I work with, with Curtis Fox, um, and some of the other folks, uh, and we put together a script, you know, mostly it's just the stories of these people. Sometimes I put in a little bit of kind of context or, um, uh, or other details that you might need. Um, but the focus is really on you know, getting the, the stories of some of the most remarkable people that uh, this documentary crew interviewed over the course of years of, of, of searching out some of the most fascinating veterans around. So, well, it's you know, an, was, yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, it took a long time to put together, but it, it, it is a, as I say, I think it's uh, the education is really, at least the way I see it is more for the general public as you were hosting this, did you feel you were talking to veterans or did you feel you're talking to that other 99%? You know, I don't know. I think there would be something for everyone because, you know, you, you may think you know a lot about the military, right? But you probably don't know all the corners of experience of like a Vietnam era nurse, right? And what they went through. Um, uh, you probably, you, you know, you don't know what it was like to be, um, you know, one of the Tuskegee airmen who was captured, right, and in a POW camp, right? Um, and those are some really interesting stories. So I think there's, I think there's something for, for veteran and the civilian alike. And I think the hope is that people would be able to listen to this and that would provide an entry point for, for conversation uh, for both veterans and, and um, uh, non-veterans. I also think it gives us veterans a look into maybe, as you say, something we didn't really experience ourselves, whether it was yeah. because we're not in the Coast Guard or, you know, we're not a black or African-American woman or man, you know, in, in service or a Native American or, or, or a gay man during a don't ask, mm-hmm. don't tell era. So it gave us a look into some of those other areas that uh, certainly we wouldn't uh, have been exposed to in our, whether it be two years, yeah. four years, or 20 years of service. Yeah, for sure. And, and is this, um, as you've talked to folks, and, and um, uh, this is now out, uh, as you say, you can see it on uh, PBS, you can see, find it on the internet, there's a podcast version. 
Talk a little bit about the reaction you're getting from people. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, I think people, some people, uh, are just really gripped by, um, different stories, right? Um, you know, my wife's favorite story that she listened to thus far was the story of the Vietnam era nurse, right? She found, you know, not just her story extremely compelling, but the person, right. And, and how she talked about it and, and, and what she'd been through. Um, just really insightful and compelling. You know, I, I know that some people, <laughs> when they listen to sort of Frank DeVita's story, it is just one of the most emotionally gripping things you can possibly imagine. Um, other people, you know, there's, there's, there's a guy who was, you know, gay man in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and what eventually outed him to his command was when his partner was shot. Uh, and ultimately killed by a cop. Um, and he wanted to go home to see him as he was dying. And, you know, that is, that is a very intense, you know, very intense thing. Um, and, you know, with each one, you see the ways that they think about their experience, the ways that it is, you know, they think about their time in the military. Um, you know, there's obviously for me, uh, <laughs> I like the writers. So there's, you know, a World War II veteran, uh, the one who I mentioned who kept volunteering for missions who went on to become a poet, right? And I found his story and, and the whole trajectory of his life and what he took from the military uh, just to be really fascinating. And so it's, it's sort of fun to see what resonates with people and, um, and what really captures them. Well, as somebody who studied history and is uh, a writer by profession, and who thought he was going to be a teacher. Um, yeah, 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 I did. Have you thought about how this kind of series, this sort of one-on-one story, which is what this is really about, it's each each person's individual story, how it has a way of opening up history that you couldn't just do in a, in a I'll call it a dry book, a dry history book. Oh, yeah, for sure, for Can, sure. Yeah, what's your reaction I mean, to that? I, I I think that's absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think that it makes it incredibly vivid and just, you know, you, you see what people are going through and the choices that, that they're making um, and the ways that they see the world in relationship to what they've been through. So, you know, you know the, the experience of, of war in the military for these folks, it doesn't just stay during that sort of discrete chunk of time when they were in service, it informs how they go on and live their lives. And, and in some cases, you know, be very kind of uh, prominent people or do important things later on in their lives. And, and so uh, in that regard, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's just incredibly eye opening and, and makes you see these sort of broader narratives of history in a very different and intimate way. Well, here on Veterans Radio, we're we're really all about telling veteran stories, sort of getting that word out, um, helping folks understand, you know, what veterans go through in the military, how everybody's got their own story, and and there's there are lessons to learn from every one of these stories. And I think, uh, as the host of this series for PBS. American veteran, you've done a you've done a great job, and they've done a great job uh, putting this together. I commend you. 
but before I let you kind of sneak your way out of here, um, <laughs> because I, I wanted to make fun about a Marine who thinks he can write, uh, <laughs> you know, it's one thing to write uh, about, uh, you know, real life experiences that you have, the nonfiction world, but mm-hmm. uh, you've written your first novel. Uh, yes, I have. So tell us a little bit about the creative juices that uh, had you write Missionaries, which was just mm-hmm. uh, released about a year ago, I guess, and mm-hmm. uh, did uh, did real well and is doing real well. Tell us about it. Yeah, so so my first book was a book of short stories about Iraq. It was called Redeployment. Um, and it was, you know, 12 different characters all in Iraq. And the And I've been thinking and writing about American wars for a long time now. Uh, and I, you know, write a lot of essays and, and things like that. And the more that I thought about these things, the more it seemed insufficient to just talk about one war, right? So, uh, and to give you an example, why there's a scene in the book later, late in the book, where I have a Colombian mercenary who's looking through the optics of a Chinese-made drone, um, which <laughs> is communicating over sort of Swedish telecommunications uh, infrastructure to an Emirati pilot who's about to drop an American bomb on a Yemeni tribesman, right? This doesn't sound and like this, fiction at this point. This, that's just about reality. <laughs> well, yeah, that is, that is reality. And, you know, when you look at something like that, right, it becomes clear that you can't just talk about one conflict, right? And if you're trying to talk about how we wage war now and the ways in which, you know, we're sort of reshaping the world through that violence. Right. Um, and so I decided I was going to create a novel where I have sort of different characters who start out in different theaters of conflict. So, you know, you meet one person in Afghanistan, you meet one person in Iraq and you meet two other characters in Colombia, which a lot of people don't know has been the largest recipient of military aid in the Western hemisphere since the end of the Clinton administration. Right. And the other thing that a lot of people don't know about Colombia <laughs> is that we keep sort of exporting lessons learned or um, from Colombia to other conflicts that it's seen as a sort of success case. So every ambassador to Colombia post 9-11 has gone on to work in the war on terror in some regard. Two of our ambassadors to Colombia, their next posting was to be the ambassador to Afghanistan. One of them later said there was no place in the world we had more going on than Colombia, including Afghanistan. And so what ends up happening in the novel is these sort of four characters, the sort of fates become entwined because of a military strike in a very poor region of Colombia on the border with Venezuela. And, um, and so I wanted to sort of show sort of at various different levels of the conflict, the ways that we wage war now. So, you know, one of the characters kind of lives in this village and sort of when, when violence happens, he experiences it um, as somebody who has to navigate the new sort of social and political landscape in the wake of, of, of violence. I have a Colombian military officer. I have a uh, American special forces guy who is sort of at odds with the ways that the mission of special forces has changed over the course of the war on terror. This is sort of a debate that's happened within the SF community. And then uh, you have an American journalist who's kind of trying to make sense of it all. And, yeah, so that's that was sort of the idea behind the novel. Um, well, it sounds, uh, sounds fascinating. I haven't read it. I will. Um, we want to encourage our veteran radio listeners to pick it up and look at it. I think they'll find it uh, 
it's got, it's got all the elements, both uh, fact and fiction, that I think uh, will make it uh, a quick and enjoyable read. But one more thing I want to ask you about: uh, yep. you wrote you wrote on this in the New Yorker a little bit um, uh, a couple of months back after the uh, the pullout of Afghanistan, uh, the American pullout of Af- Afghanistan. Give, give us your view on what this the conclusion of this 20, 20 year war kind of means locally in Afghanistan and more globally to the United States? I think that it means that we have to think very hard about the ways that we wage war. I think that it means that we, um, you know, for a long time, we have essentially ceded um, responsibility for war making to the president, right? Uh, we're still operating on the same authorization for the use of military force uh, that we had in effect after 9-11. And um, that has been interpreted to allow presidents to, you know, kill people belong to groups that are didn't even exist then, right? Um, and instead of regularly debating and voting on the use of American force, Congress um, sort of just has this kind of open-ended blank check for American presidents. And I don't think that that ultimately results in good policy. I think we need more oversight, and I think that we need more political leaders to regularly be debating our military policy. I think the president should come have to come before Congress every couple of years and explain where we have troops in harm's way, where we're killing people, why we're killing people, what it's supposed to do, what the benchmarks of success are going to be. So in two more years, when he comes back to ask for the mission to continue, we can actually judge whether or not we did any of the things that we said we were doing it for. And I want to know how much it's going to cost. Um, I think that's a, you know, that's a fairly basic thing that a democracy should demand um, if we're, you know, we're going to be overseas. And I don't think we have any chance of having responsible military policy if we don't actually force our elected leaders to to vote on these things and to make decisions and to make hard calls. The other thing that I think we can take away from it is that we have, you know, the limits, the limits of, 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 of American nation building, right? And the, the extent to which we allowed ourselves to fool ourselves about what we had done. I mean, the speed with which the Kabul government fell was astonishing, right? After 20 years of pouring unbelievable resources into it, right? Um, it became very clear that what, what we had created was, was basically a mirage to fool ourselves, right? Rather than a sustainable government. Yeah, this, the other thing, yeah. And no, the, 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 yeah, is, go ahead and give us that. We have failed a lot of the people who believed in us, who risked their lives for us. And, you know, I've been on the phone with folks who work for the U.S. government who are still in Kabul, right, uh, whose lives are at risk because they work for us. Some of their stories are unbelievably harrowing. And we, we failed to really plan for an evacuation of those people. Um, during the Trump years, we shut them out, right? Uh, we didn't allow much in the way of uh, immigration from those countries, including for people who had worked for us, um, who had risked their lives for us. And, and then we didn't adequately plan for evacuation uh, during the Biden presidency. And there's still people there, and there's a lot of things that we can do and should be doing um, uh, to help those people. And the folks who are here, who did get out, uh, need more aid and support. Right, because the current assistance for those folks is not sufficient, um, and there are a lot of, a lot of great sort of <clears throat> local programs and 
and charitable organizations um, that uh, uh, that work on those issues. And I believe welcome.us is a website you can go to to get linked up to uh, to some folks. But that I think is is a sort of moral stand. You know, I've, I've been talking to to veterans who've been working on this. You know, as one of the guys said, um, his interpreter is here, but his, his family is still in Afghanistan. And he said to me, he said, this guy saved my life like multiple times. Why would I ever stop doing everything that I can for his family to try and get his family out? Um, and it didn't have to be this way, right? There's yeah, no reason yeah. that that guy's family should still be stuck over there, right? With their lives at risk. Um, there's no reason that so many people, you know, one of the, one of my, one of my friends was working on a case and the guy was murdered, you know, um, it's, yeah, I, I think unfortunately the uh, whatever you want to call it, the political, military, industrial complex sort of grinds up individuals, and and part of that is there aren't those discussions ahead of time or transparency, whatever word you like. Um, but this is a national security issue yeah, as well, right? Yeah. You know, because the way that we wage war now is through the use of local partners, right? So. Wherever we are doing counterterrorism missions, we are relying on locals to help us. And as one guy who works in this space told me, he said, why would anyone trust us seeing how we treated our allies in Afghanistan? Yeah, there, there's, a much, be yeah there's a much bigger issue there because yeah, I think you can say the same thing if you're sitting in Taiwan or South Korea or a lot of places where you're going, hmm, I wonder if the promises are really... Uh, going to be followed through on. Uh, uh, Phil Cly, I want to really uh, thank you for the time, the extra time you've uh, given us today as the host of American Veteran, the PBS uh, series. Um, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about a couple of things you've written on uh, recently and some thoughts about uh, Afghanistan. And uh, thanks for giving us some time this afternoon for Veterans Radio, Phil. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, Eisenhower Center. VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. They keep us on the air, as does your support. Go to Facebook, go to veteransradio.net, and support our efforts. And until next time, you are dismissed.